you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to the third chapter of the book of Romans. We will soon be finishing off that chapter, beginning in verse 27. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And in that Bible, you can find Romans 3, beginning in verse 27 on page 941. I don't think it is the case anymore, but it used to be that after winning the Super Bowl or the World Series or the NBA Finals, someone would go up to the star player and immediately thrust a microphone in his face. This player who still had sweat rolling off of his face and had confetti sticking to him because of the celebration and ask him, what are you going to do now? And the answer would inevitably come back, premeditated as it was, I'm going to go to Disney World. It's quite an odd piece of advertising, really. This person likely just finished their childhood dreams, in many cases literally with blood, sweat, and tears overcoming obstacles not only in their path to get there, but even in the game itself. I'm sure that what they're really thinking about doing is not basking in that for a little bit, not trying to soak up everything that's happening, but they want to immediately get on a plane, travel to a swamp, stand in line for 40 minutes so that they can hear fake children scream scream at them. It's a small world after all. I'm pretty sure that anyone who has won the World Series wants to be reminded how big the world is, not how small it is. But it must have worked. I I found this terribly convincing. I think it's just human nature. We, We don't really like to dwell on the things that are past. We want to always push forward for the things that are new. Sure, I I know that you did that, but what have you done for me lately? What are you going to do next? What is going to happen now? We have just come off of one of the greatest passages in Scripture. That means that it's one of the greatest passages in any human language. Christ has justified us from our sin. That justification is freely given to us through faith. He has done this out of the kindness and the goodness of his heart. And although God himself was wrathful against us, he himself took that wrath by becoming enclosed in human flesh so that we might go free. And while we wouldn't expect Paul to now exclaim that he is going to go to Disney World after this, we probably do expect something about the future. We expect something about our inheritance. We expect something about heaven. We expect something about how sufferings of this world will pass on and how judgment will go on without us. While Paul will indeed get there, he doesn't seem to be in much of a rush. He understands better than we do. There is still much to talk about. Beginning here in verse 27 and running basically through the fifth chapter, Paul turns his attention not to the future but to the past. To truly grasp the importance of the events that we just read about, the the events that we've spent two weeks speaking of, and really more than that as we've spoken of our sin and the great debt we owe to God. To really put that in context, Paul needs to go back to set the scope of the story that backgrounds all of this, the plot of the narrative and the drama that encapsulates it. If you were an eight-year-old boy winning a football game and then having your dad come and tell you, hey, we're going to go to Disney World, isn't a bummer, that is the greatest day you've ever had. For a man who spent a childhood dreaming of such a day, spending their time, ignoring other responsibilities and opportunities, ignoring other relationships, pouring their life, experiencing pain and distress and mental anguish to accomplish this goal, 
it seems more than a bit underwhelming to then just simply go off to Disney World. It seems underwhelming because once we understand the background to it, once we understand all of the work that went into it, we finally know how to proceed. So to understand the importance of this event, Paul goes backward before he goes forward. And as we go kind of on that journey with him, Paul's first stop seems to be a fairly familiar one. He's going to talk to us yet again about the law. So what does our justification and that by faith teach us about the law? Let us go to Romans 3, 27 through 31 and hear the word of our God. There Paul writes this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the infallible and errant and beautiful word of our God. What does our justification by faith teach us about the law? First, justification by faith condemns our boasting. It condemns our boasting. Clearly, when Paul says what becomes of our boasting, he can talk about all Christians this way and include them in the hour, and certainly he means that. This means our boasting as well, but I think it's probably pointed directly at Jews. He is speaking now as a Jew to other Jews. What becomes of Jewish boasting? What kind of boasting is this? Back in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, later on in that same passage in verse 23, he would say, You who boast in the law. The boasting that the Jews did was directly because God had given them the law. The law was a sign that he was their God and they were his people. If they were to boast in God through the law was how they boasted. We have a standing before God. The Gentiles don't know God. We know God. They seemed to have a boast there. What Paul is arguing is that now, because justification is clearly by faith, it doesn't come by the law. There is no standing in the law. Having the law and simply having it, having it be passed down from generation to generation, is nothing anymore to boast about. Even though it does seem as though the Jews would have an inside advantage in this, God has basically handed them a playbook for how to please him. He's given them his presence. He manifested them, not just on Mount Sinai, but in the tabernacle and then in the temple. He gave them his promises. Such benefits seem to befit boasting. These things, all of these benefits, seem to give you a better standing before God, but they simply don't. The idea of being justified wholly and completely and totally by faith, outside of the things that you do, in Jesus Christ, condemns all such boasting. None of these things gives you a leg up in terms of salvation. There is no benefit to having the law if you cannot keep it. There is no benefit in knowing God's promises if you do not and ignore, if you do not know and follow and ignore the very means that God has used to secure those promises. Pride is an incredibly insidious thing. Most humans are really good at avoiding stupidly dangerous things. 
evil Knievel. We can watch him, old tapes of him trying to jump over like 19 buses at a time and breaking 13 bones when he mislands. We can look at that and say, yeah, probably won't try that. You know, it's Tuesday. There's, there's a show on tonight that I want to see, so I'm just not going to run my motorcycle at 100 miles an hour directly into a cement ground, right? Most people don't fall for that kind of stuff. We don't find that to be the kind of adventure we want to deal with. We see that it's dangerous and we avoid it. But it took human beings millennia to figure out that washing our hands, cooking food thoroughly, and perhaps cleaning surgical instruments after they've been used is a good way to avoid death. One of these things is patently obvious. One of these things is small and invisible. One of these things kills billions and has killed billions of people. The other, hundreds. Pride is precisely like this. And you can see the ugly in, in this incredibly cocksure person who is always crowing about how great he is, always speaking about himself, always letting everyone know that he himself is this great gift to humanity, demanding respect that most cases he is never going to earn. We see them, and we know that they're so self-assured, it's almost nauseating to us. We think, man, I don't, I don't want to be like, be like that. We know to avoid being those kind of people. And so long as we label that as what pride is, it's easy to avoid it. But often, we miss the small and invisible way that our own pride tends to work on us daily. The vast majority of the people who are in this room grew up in very, very nice homes. I don't mean just nice buildings, although that's probably true. I mean you grew up in good family homes. Places where your parents taught you to mind your manners, to respect your elders, to present yourself well to other people, to speak when spoken to. Basic things like having good hygiene, being a good manager of your money, loving others, getting an education. Friends, these are not small benefits. They give life a great deal of consistency. It comes with a huge amount of economic benefit for those who can follow these things, and not to mention all the social benefits that come along with them. These are not small things. They help to bring order and to help ward off chaos in life. Because these are actually good things, we ought to give thanks to God for those good things. But precisely because they are good things, we also need to be warned about them. It's a small step because these things are good. Because these are great benefits in this world, it is a small step to thinking they become good benefits for the next. It's a short trip, shorter than we would like to admit, between thanking God for the good things that he has provided for us and thinking that we are actually better than others to pray to God and say, thank you, God, that I am not like other men who are drug dealers and criminals, who are lazy, sexually immoral, or any like, anything like those people. While the humble man, far away, refuses to even lift his eyes to heaven, simply beats his breast and asks for forgiveness. Christ says, one of these two will go back to his home justified. And it's not the one that sounds and looks like us. 
Do not think yourself better than others who are less socially equipped than you, who are lower on the economic rung than you, who do not have life put together as well as you do. Don't think yourself better than the homeless who is wrecked through addiction to drug, who lives without any covering over his head, smelling of his own urine. Friends, you were saved by a homeless man who had none of your comforts. None. Who, Scripture says, though rich became poor for our sake, that by his poverty we might become rich. Who was better known by the outcasts of society than those who formed society. We, especially, who feel the benefits of these sort of good upbringings, must constantly be humbling ourselves. Because without knowing it, we can become very close to gaining the world and losing our souls. Let the justification of your life simply that is given to you by faith because nothing in you deserves it. Humble you. Secondly, justification by faith confirms the law. Justification by faith confirms the law. Paul's contention at the end of verse 27 is, as he asks, by what kind of law? That can be read in a somewhat ironic way. Paul is saying something along the lines of, now you know you're not saved by rule-keeping. And because you're not saved by rule-keeping, here's something you can't do. Right? It's kind of like those unthinking populist people who simply regurgitate the phrases that are popular in the ethos of our day. People who will look at you and say, you know, the one thing I won't tolerate is intolerance. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess we kind of understand what you mean by that. We we understand that you mean, like, the things that you don't want to tolerate, you won't tolerate, and that which you think should be tolerated will be tolerated, and you're not going to tolerate the things you won't want to tolerate, right? So we kind of understand what you mean, but you said it so dopely, which isn't even a word, that it becomes just incredibly self-defeating. So is that what Paul's doing? Is Paul saying, hey, you're not justified by rule-keeping, and that means that you've got to keep this rule, What kind of law is this? Paul doesn't simply want you to start keeping the law again, or he's not just going to supply you some new kind of law. The question he first asks is simple. By what kind of law? Or you could understand this to be, what is the basis for saying that we can't boast anymore? What is the reason why we shouldn't boast anymore? He says, by what kind of law? By the law of works? He answers and says, no by the law of faith. And a lot of how we're going to interpret that is going to turn on the fact of how we interpret the word law there. Is law sort of figurative, not meaning the law of Moses, which we would normally literally understand it as, but does it possibly mean sort of a figurative law, meaning a principle or something like that? Is it the principle of works that gets us to deny our boasting, or is it the principle of living by faith that gets us to deny it? Well, I don't think it can be strictly this sort of figurative meaning of principle 
Because when Paul uses works of the law, he is almost always talking about the law of Moses. And even though this construction is slightly different, it really does seem like he's probably talking about the law of Moses here. Maybe the first time he uses it, when he says of works by a law of works, he means it literally the law of Moses by works. But when he says, no, no, it's actually the law of faith, he means that sort of, no, it's a principle of faith. But that seems difficult to me because he doesn't actually change how he's speaking. He seems to be saying the same thing. The law in each case seems to be clearly identical. So I think he is actually referring to the law of Moses in both. You need to understand something, therefore, about the law. The law of Moses is not simply there to show us our failures. It's not a bar that God sets and simply watches as we try to reach it. Sometimes I hold my dog's toys up so high that she can't get to them, and she really, really tries, but she's just short. That's not what God is doing to us in the law, or at least not alone. Clearly, it has that function. Paul, even up in verse 20, has said that through the law comes knowledge of sin. The fact that we don't match up to the law does actually reveal sin to us. So that is one of the things that it's meant to do, but that's not all it does. The law is also there to reveal to us the very nature and character of God. It helps us to understand who God is and what he wants us to be. Now, anytime we start talking about the law, we need to reference the fact that it was given in a specific context and to a specific culture that we do not belong to. It was given to the nation of Israel. We are a post-redemption people found in Jesus Christ. These are not small factors in how we view the law. Christian church has long since reappropriated the law outside of its simple, literal setting. The church hasn't, however, thought that the basic purpose of the law in giving us a picture of righteous living is somehow an outdated mode of thinking about things or purposeless now that we have Christ. We've rightly praised the law today, even in our service. We've been walking through in a responsive reading through Psalm 119. As we walk through Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible that lands smack dab in the middle of the Bible, it is nothing but praising the very law of God. We have spoken this morning. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. I know some of you are thinking, I didn't say that, Caleb said that. Well, yes, Caleb said that, but then you turned around and said, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. We uphold God's law. We praise God's law. The Word of God does that. If we're led by the Word of God, I don't think that we can say, God's law is really meaningless and hopeless now. It doesn't matter to us, and we can just move on from it. Reading through Psalm 119 sounds distinctly different than anyone who would desire to place the law behind them or at have a negative view of the law. Rather, we should affirm both what Paul affirms and what the law affirms with the psalmist. I love the law. But if we are to love the law, what does that look like? How are we to walk forward in this love of the law? The first thing we've got to be very clear about is to make sure that we understand precisely what Paul wants to disabuse us of. It is not that the law is good. It's not that the law is righteous, and it's not that the law is true. He doesn't want to tell you that those things are not good and true. He upholds it. If you go back over to chapter 7, he's going to talk about how the law is good and right and true. What Paul wants to disabuse us of is a wrong view of the purpose of the law. Just as possessing the law doesn't give anyone an advantage in salvation, for without 
keeping it perfectly. You cannot be justified by it, and no one does it. That doesn't mean that the law is therefore useless and meaningless. Rather, it simply has a different purpose. And once we understand that, and we understand it rightly, the question becomes what the purpose of the law is or what the nature of the law is. The law is perfect, and it shows us the nature and the character of God. And it has always been given from the time that Moses himself stood up on that mountain and told the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. It has always been given not as a path to salvation, but as a path forward post-salvation, post-redemption, post-deliverance to help God's people navigate this world in righteousness. Listen to how the Ten Commandments begin. Moses comes down the mountain and he says, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Before the commandments even begin, God reminds them of where they are, saying, don't you forget, I have redeemed you. I brought you out. The water is still crashing behind them. That's actually not, it's a couple of later. But nevertheless, you kind of get what I'm saying. Like they, they have fresh in their memory all the plagues, all the work of God, all the miracles of God, everything that he has done. He reminds them, I redeemed you. They were to approach the law not from a standpoint of earning God's favor by keeping the law, but because God's favor is already over them. How could they possibly think that if they kept the law, God would redeem them when God just redeemed them? It's not the purpose of the law. They were to love the law, not because it was meant to give them justification, not because it was meant to provide redemption for them, but because it shows their heart in loving a God who has already redeemed them. Keeping the law was not the basis on which God was going to deliver his people. That was always faith. Something that Paul is going to be at pains to show, especially in chapter 4. This is another way that anyone who would go to the law and say, I'm going to just do what God commands and I'm going to do it perfectly. It's another way of showing how they break the law. Not just that they break the law by breaking the commands of the law. They break the law by not even understanding what the law is there for. It's not there to show you how you get into God's kingdom. It is there to give you guidance and a path to walk, to be faithful before God once you are already in. You are not saved by your good works, but by your faith. This is why Paul asks in verse 31, if we are throwing out or pushing the law aside. So if it is all by faith, And it's not by works of the law. Are we sort of nullifying the law? Are we overthrowing the law? And Paul says rather firmly, no. Rather, we are establishing the law or we are upholding the law. What Paul means is that we are now in a position to use the law in the correct way. The law was not meant to be a means of establishing our righteousness before God, but rather it is a vehicle for responding to God's salvation. So, friends, read the law. If you've got a daily reading plan and it comes up to Leviticus, don't just like put it off a month and then be like, oh, I guess I'll pick it back up now that we're in Deuteronomy, right? And then say, well, Deuteronomy's got a lot of law in it too. Maybe I'll just wait till we get to to Joshua because then we got military conquest and that's kind of fun to read. No, read the law, study it, listen to its precepts, try to figure out why it speaks the way it does. Always keeping in mind that the law speaks differently to us now. First of all, it's fulfilled in Christ, 
So when you come to those sacrificial parts of the law, you shouldn't think, I wonder what the going rate is for a goat, and I wonder if I'm going to have to build like a pad to sacrifice it on. I, I, no, we, you read those and you think, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is how Jesus has saved us. He has become this goat. He has become the one that would bleed and die for us. Knowing that many of the laws were meant to help Israel navigate itself as a nation. And therefore, because we're not part of that nation, we should use such laws to look at the very character of God and his justice and what he wants from his justice. So for instance, in Numbers 35, we read this. Moses is told by God, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills anyone without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, not Captain America, but the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. How ought we to uphold this? Should we say, well, what we should do is we should make sure that we do our level best to make sure Bay City is one of these cities of refuge. And we're going to go down, we're going to protest at City Hall, we're going to do everything we can so that this can be a city of refuge because God said we need to have cities of refuge. We don't have cities of refuge, so we're, we're going to work really hard to get this to be... No, that's obviously not the case. What the whole purpose of this is, is to say there are some things that are murder and there are some things that are accidental deaths. But people in their grief can't always see these things wisely. And they might think that you killed my brother, you killed my husband on purpose, and then seek to avenge his death. And so, you run to a city of refuge that will take you in, that will keep you safe until the event can be rightly judged. In other words, this is due process. It's making sure that people are handled fairly and wisely, and justice is found fully, but sometimes slowly. So we read it knowing that it's fulfilled in Christ, knowing that many of these laws were meant to help Israel as a nation and as people seeking justice. But further, just knowing that many of these laws are just fully enforced today. When the law says, you shall not steal, right? It doesn't mean that now Jesus has fulfilled everything, just have at it. I mean, just go and have some fun, right? There's car lots out there filled with cars. Just take one. And Paul goes out of his way and says, no, you, you know thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't be a thief. Paul goes so far as to actually quote a commandment in his instructions to the churches. In the book of Ephesians, he says, you are to honor your mother and father, for it is the first commandment with a pro- promise that you might live long in the land. It's clear that Paul thinks that this thing still holds. It's still good for us. So read the law, study it, learn it. It's good, it's rich, it's true. But as you are striving to uphold the law, remember why you do so. It is never to earn justification. It's never to make yourself righteous before the Lord. But rather, it is a response to God's own justification of you. That you might walk in paths of righteousness before him. Our justification by faith actually confirms the law. And thirdly, Justification by faith conforms to God's being. It conforms to God's being. It makes sense out of who God is. In the middle of our passage, 
Paul makes this sort of odd argument. He says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Paul simply means that there is only one God. It's not that these things that the the rest of the people in the world might have worshipped, whether it was the Egyptian gods or the Roman gods or the Greek gods, weren't actual beings. In some cases, we were probably right to think that they were actual demonic powers that these people worshipped. It's not that they're not real beings. It's that these real beings, even if they are spiritual, powerful beings, are not God. There is but one God in heaven. There is no one like God. He stands above all things as a real, true, creator God. This means that because God is one, he is also the God of the Gentiles, whether they acknowledge that or not. They can fight against God. They might ignore God. They can insist that he isn't really truly God, but his God, but their God, he is. Regardless of what they believe, regardless of what they say, regardless of how they handle themselves, there is but one true and living God. Therefore, as the argument goes, God will reach them in the same way that he reaches all people, whether they're Jew or Gentile, it is always by faith. And here Paul seems to quote, again from the law of all places, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, which is at the heart of what every Jew believed about God and is part of Moses' own explanation of the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Zechariah would expand that outside of the covenant given directly to Israel and say, you know, the entire world will one day know God is one. In an apocalyptic section that happens right at the end of the book of Zechariah, he writes this, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one. And his name, one. Everyone will know that there is one God. There is not many gods. There is not, there's not a God for the Romans. There's not a God for the Gauls. There's not a God for the Egyptians and a God for the Canaanites. There is one God over all, and he will show himself glorious over all of the earth. The nations will come to know the Lord of all the earth by his name. He is the same God of the Israelites and the Canaanites, of the Romans and the Jews, of the slave and the free of all who have faith in him. This one God has manifested himself in Jesus Christ. (coughs) After all, this is precisely where the Jews fail. The Jews believe that there is one God. This belief in one God himself is not enough because what they've done is they've so perverted their understanding of God that when he stands before them, they do not recognize him. You cannot know the true God outside of knowing him in Jesus Christ, who is the very embodiment of God in the flesh. He is God of God. He is light of light, who, for us and our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and became man. So yes, God is one, and he has manifested himself perfectly and clearly in Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, who is our great God made manifest to us. In Jesus Christ alone, we find our salvation, our justification, our rock, our peace, our comfort, our sacrifice, our victorious king, our brother, and our friend. And therefore, because our faith is always pointed at Christ and his work, 
our external and passing cultural things, these cultural indicators that we care so much about are of absolutely no concern to God. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means a thing, but only faith in Christ. So let us press upon that again and again and again. You are not saved by your works. You're not saved because of your virtuous life. You're not saved because of your nationality, because of your work ethic, because of a clean criminal record, because you are human, or because you try oh so hard. You're saved only because God is gracious to you, taking on your sin and the penalty it deserved in Jesus Christ, taking it away from you and giving you justification in its stead. You're saved only by trusting in Jesus. So, because God has so acted for you, who is the one God, the both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ? Humble yourselves in faith and walk in the light of God's word by faith. For there is great freedom in Christ, a freedom which is found in no one and nothing else. Know this Jesus, trust this Jesus, hold fast to this Jesus, for in him there is a salvation that is sure and steady as an anchor for the soul. And before him will we stand or fall. May you be able to stand before him by faith in the day of his coming. Let us pray. Mighty God, give us faith today. Let us hold tightly onto Christ for our salvation. And in that salvation, rightly given to us in Christ, may we come to see the beauty of your law, not as a means of our salvation or as a text of commands that exists outside of what Jesus has done for us, but as a helpful guide to your people, light to their path and wisdom for their thoughts. We pray that you will do this. For such things are assuredly for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand?